Welcome to the August edition of The Compliance Life. This month, I visit with Scott Garland, who's had a most interesting non-traditional compliance and ethics career, but I thought it would be very instructive if we had him on. So, this month on The Compliance Life, Scott Garland. The Compliance Life details the journey to and in the role of a chief compliance officer. How does one come to sit in the CCO chair? What are some of the skills a CCO needs to successfully navigate the compliance waters in any company? What are some of the top challenges CCOs have faced and how did they meet them? These questions and many others will be explored in this new podcast series. The Compliance Life is hosted by Tom Fox and each month he'll present the story of one CCO through four episodes. The Compliance Life is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode, Scott Garland moves to Boston into the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Western District of Massachusetts, where he eventually becomes the professional responsibility officer for the district. Before we get to this episode, we're going to have a quick word from our sponsor, and we'll be right back with Scott Garland. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back for another episode of The Compliance Life for the month of August. This month, we're featuring Scott Garland, Managing Director at Affiliated Monitors. And Scott, in this episode, you moved to the professional responsibility officer role. I was wondering if we could start with how you got that role and then some of the the reasons this intrigued you. Thanks for having me back, Tom. I was asked to be the professional responsibility officer when my mentor from the cybercrime unit who was also the professional responsibility officer, announced his retirement. I had no idea that I was in the running for this position, but they tapped me on the shoulder and asked me to do it. And I think I had the same sort of reaction that everybody who's asked to do this sort of position did, which was, wait a minute, I have to take care of not only my bar card, but everybody else's bar card. But what I was fortunate in learning was that the Department of Justice has a great support system for professional responsibility officers. They have an office in DC where they have stone cold experts in this field who are always a telephone call or an email away. So what were some of the job duties of this role initially? You have to be an expert to become an expert on legal ethics. In Massachusetts, they're called the rules of professional conduct. Every jurisdiction has their own rules of professional conduct for lawyers and they're pretty standard with some important differences. So you have to be an expert on that. You have to be an expert on knowing when you don't know what you should know, knowing when to pick up the phone and call somebody. You have to have an awareness of constitutional issues, an awareness of DOJ regulations as well. And you have to have an understanding of how to basically treat people so that, number one, they want to admit to you when something might have gone wrong that needs some looking into, or number two, that they don't know the answer to a question and are willing to come to you. Let me pick up on that point because you've now said it, I think you actually said it three times in that answer, which was people either coming to you, people calling you, or people raising their hand and saying, I need some help. How do you really foster that type of culture, which allows people who do have a question before it even becomes a problem pick up the phone and call someone like yourself or come to your office? I found that the best approach was humility. I had been a prosecutor at that point for quite a while and a lawyer as well. And 
part of becoming a lawyer is making the mistakes that young lawyers make and also making the mistakes that experienced lawyers make. So when somebody would come to my office, a lot of times what I would do is express sympathy. I would note that I had probably made the same mistake myself a number of times beforehand and had learned from it. And I think that set people at ease. So what I tried to do was to not only show my humility and my experience, but also to be calm, to say, okay, I understand you've got a situation and maybe you have to deal with it in 15 or 30 minutes, but it's, and it's life and death, literally, for a criminal investigation. But we're going to get through that. And then what I did was draw on some of the training I had before in law school and economics. How are we going to analyze this? How are we going to, you're telling me that the issue is one thing. How do we make sure that that's the only issue that you're confronting? So it's being very analytical and then trying to be principled as well. How do we make sure that we are adhering to what DOJ and the public and the legal profession asks us to do while also accomplishing the mission that we're here to do? I have never practiced law on the criminal side of things. I've always been on the civil side of things. But my sense is every prosecutor's office from the smallest county in the state of Texas, literally to the Department of Justice, has prosecutorial guidelines. So I'm going to assume they exist. You also, because your work would be in federal court, have another set of obligations. That's under the U.S. Constitution. How do you think through what I'm going to call a multidimensional chess game or chess approach where you do have multiple levels and different requirements and help an individual prosecutor navigate those issues? I think you have to have an analysis that is multi-level. First is, am I seeing anything that's just a, puts a stop to everything, right? You're asking me a question about the rules that we have in DOJ, but if there's a constitutional obligation that has a flat answer, let's forget about that other analysis. Let's just focus on the most basic principles so that we know if we have to any further. Some of what you're doing, of course, is you're trying to keep up with the literature and current events as to what's going on so you're adept at spotting these problems when somebody comes to you. And then part of what you're trying to do as well is use a risk management approach, which I think most good compliance professionals try to do, which is that there are going to be some questions for which there's an absolute answer of yes or no, and let's go ahead and get those known answers out of the way quickly. After that, you have to be thinking to yourself, okay, if I'm allowed to do something, is it a good idea anyhow? What are other people going to think about this? What do I think about this? What's the court going to think about it? What's the jury going to think about it? And then the other question is, there are a lot of issues as in law that sound like they should be clear-cut, but really aren't. And in those cases, what you're looking at and you're asking the other people in your office to look at is that if we're in another area where the outcome is not clear in court, what should we do? Are there safeguards? Could we go to the court and get a court order blessing what we do? Do we need a court order? If we don't take this step, are we going to lose something that's important? Is there another way that sidesteps this whole process that is much easier, much simpler, and much less controversial? And I think those are the sorts of questions you're asking yourself all along. So you spoke about the role of the individual professional responsibility officer in garnering a culture 
that would have people raise their hand, have people speak up, have people call you. What's the role of the U.S. attorney setting an overall tone in the office, what we would say tone at the top? How does that work in conjunction with your role? That tone at the top is very important, and you see it when the U.S. attorney, him or herself, calls you for guidance on a variety of issues, and that happened as, as well. That happened a lot in conflict of interest situations that you had to bring to the U.S. attorney's attention because ultimately the U.S. attorney is the one who signs off on certain conflicts of interest and whether to waive them or not. And I think everybody has to respect the U.S. attorney and how the U.S. attorney treats these issues to know that it's a safe place to go for questions, for answers, and to basically be able to say, no, I'm not going to take a particular step because we know that it's not the right thing to do. You also mentioned a couple of other, I'm going to call them groups, that you certainly have to think about as a trial lawyer. Of course, the judge, but also the jury. And one of the things I tried to articulate as a recovering trial lawyer when I got to the corporate world is who's going to look at this? Is it the um, is it a judge? Would it be a judge trial if it's a contract issue? Would it be an arbitrator if we have an arbitration pr- provision? Or would it be in Texas, it was 12 people. In federal court in Texas, it was six people. Would it be six citizens drawn from a district who would look at this issue and how would it be perceived? Did you have those types of quest- conversations as well? Definitely. People often talk about a good rule of conduct is to think about whether what you did will be on the front page. When you're working at the U.S. Attorney's Office or really any prosecutor's office, what you did will literally be on the front page. And not only the front page of your hometown paper, but all over the country and sometimes the world. We definitely had those conversations. The other thing that was really important, at the Department of Justice, you are charged with doing justice. And some people may think that's a schmaltzy concept, but when you're a prosecutor, I don't care whether you're a federal prosecutor, state or local prosecutor, you actually take that into account. And you want to do things that appear just and that are just as well. And everybody that I ever dealt with at any level also agreed with that and took that into consideration, whatever the public thought about what we did or not. Uh, yeah, that's really a great point, and I was going to ask you about that. The uh, Department of Justice extends back, I think, to the original cabinet in the United States where we had an attorney general. Department individual U.S. attorneys were set up across this country. And when I talk to someone like yourself who's been in a U.S. attorney's office and who's been a trial lawyer, they say, Probably the most proud moment is when they stand and say they represent the interests of the people in the United States, and that really means something. Could you maybe say a few words about what that means when you stand up in court and make that announcement? Yeah, there are some times when you have to keep your voice from cracking when you say that because it's an emotional thing. What's important about it is that mission of doing justice and serving the people infuses everything that you do. But I'll tell you that there are other moments, I think, in a prosecutor's career that mean just as much as saying that. There are a lot of decisions that the public never really learns about. The decisions that you make where you're not going to take an an act to prosecute somebody, where maybe you could, or maybe you think that the evidence isn't there, where you're executing or exercising that prosecutorial discretion in a way that another person will never know, 
those are some of the proudest moments that I have as well, not only for myself, but the people that I served with. Was there ongoing training in the U.S. Attorney's Office to help attorneys with ethical obligations or other situations that might come up as well? There was. Not only did we try to put out forms to people that would help guide them in their ethical decisions that they were making, but there were also trainings that I would lead. And more importantly, anytime you went to training at the Department of Justice's training facility down in South Carolina, one portion of that training would be devoted to ethics. And that would generally be about an hour long. But it was every time you were there. And one of the things that DOJ is good about is getting people trained. So you're exposed to that sort of training throughout the year. And there was also year-end training as well. One of the issues that comes up from time to time are around privileged documents. We had several high-profile cases of that. And I was wondering if you might explain what a privilege team is and how someone like yourself or the Department of Justice, if... If there is a claim of privilege, how it deals with that? Yes, a privilege document is communications between a lawyer and a client, sometimes between clients discussing a lawyer's advice to them if they have a joint interest. And a privileged, and it was, it involves legal advice that both of them keep confidential and try to make sure that other people don't know anything about. A privileged document that, for example, belongs to a suspect in a crime is something that the Department of Justice shouldn't see and doesn't want to see either. And so it has lots of processes and policies and controls to make sure that if the department gains control of a privileged document, generally whether by accident or by executing a search warrant or if somebody just comes in and gives us a bunch of privileged documents, that it goes to a separate walled-off team, that is, people who are walled off from the main investigation, to figure out what the privilege issues are, and then either get a judge's blessing or the privilege holder's blessing about what to do with them. And the area I'm always interested in is, as an attorney, are allegations of attorney misconduct, particularly around trial. How would you think through that issue or help an attorney work through that issue when you were the professional responsibility officer? It depends on the question timing. Does it come up before trial or does it come up during trial or does it come up after trial? If there's, if the, let's take the last one. If it comes up after trial, then the rules are very clear and what you should do morally is very clear. If there's an issue that you learn about afterwards that raises a question of misconduct, you have to disclose whether it was misconduct that you engaged in, your trial partner engaged in, or an agent or a witness as well. And uniformly, every well, first of all, those issues come up rarely. They really do come up rarely because people try to comport themselves. But when there is one, you disclose. Issues that come up before trial, I would say that most of the issues that come up before trial are really at the investigative stage. They're not at the trial presentation stage, but when they do come up, you treat them like any other issue, which is that you try to figure out what the various issues are, what the public perception of them is going to be, what the rules say, what this particular judge is likely to rule on. Can I get rulings from the judge ahead of time 
that will tell me what's okay and what's not okay. And generally, you try to work it out with the other side, that is the defendant's counsel, before it even becomes an issue. Scott, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I hope our listeners will join us for our concluding episode where you give us some lessons learned over the years from your roles at the Department of Justice and talk about what you're up to now and maybe a little bit down the road. So I look forward to continuing this conversation. I look forward to it too. Thanks, Tom. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. Thank you again for listening to this episode of The Compliance Life. I hope you will join me again next week where I take up another episode in The Compliance Life. The Compliance Life is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. If you would like to be featured on The Compliance Life, please uh, give me an email at uh, tfox at tfoxlaw.com. Also, if you like this series, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, Any review and rating would definitely help get the word out about the latest addition to the Compliance Podcast Network. Thanks again. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.